Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Evolution of General Ideas. This book takes a psychological approach to how humans think and generate ideas. It was published in 1899 and written by Professor T.H. Ribot. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, a huge thank you to the new supporters on Patreon. Joyce Kohlberg, thank you for your $5 monthly pledge, as well as Eileen Wang with your $5 monthly pledge. Chris B, thank you for your $1 monthly pledge, and thank you also to existing patron Laura Lee Williams for your new $5 monthly pledge. All Spotify listeners, thank you for continuing to respond to the Q&A and letting me know what you thought about the episode of your choice. Thank you to iTunes listener P65 Energy. I'm glad to hear the podcast helps you study, and I hope your studies are going well. Thank you to all of the Audible listeners who have left a review. Avid listener, I'm glad you're able to fall back asleep in the middle of the night. Person, I'm glad you've never heard the end of an episode. Desiree O'Crosslin, I'm glad you find the podcast gloriously boring. Nev, I'm glad you find the podcast brilliantly boring. And Anonymous User, thank you for your kind review. And finally, Michelle Henson, Thank you for your lovely message through the website. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone. So your support in every way is truly appreciated. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. Another way to support the podcast is to simply share the podcast with a friend and leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like, you can say hello at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Evolution of General Ideas by T.H. Ribot. Preface The principal aim of this work 
is to study the development of the mind as it abstracts and generalizes, and to show that these two operations exhibit a perfect evolution. That is to say, they exist already in perception, and advance by successive and easily determined stages to the more elevated forms of pure symbolism, accessible only to the minority. It is a commonplace to say that abstraction has its degrees, has number its powers, yet it is not sufficient to enunciate this truism. The degrees must be fixed by clear, objective signs, and these must not be arbitrary. Thus we shall obtain precise knowledge of the various stages in this ascending evolution, and stand in less danger of confounding abstractions highly distinct by nature. Moreover, we avoid certain equivocal questions and discussions that are based entirely upon the very extended sense of the terms to abstract and to generalize. Accordingly, we have sought to establish three main periods in the progressive development of these operations. 1. Inferior abstraction prior to the appearance of speech, independent of words. 2. Intermediate abstraction, accompanied by words, which though at first accessory, increase in importance little by little. 3. Superior abstraction, where words alone exist in consciousness and correspond to a complete substitution. These three periods again include subdivisions, transitional forms which we shall endeavour to determine. This is a study of pure psychology, from which we have rigorously to eliminate all that relates to logic, to the theory of knowledge, to first principles of philosophy. We are concerned with genesis, with embryology, with evolution only. We are thus thrown upon observation, upon the facts wherein mental processes are enunciated and discovered. Chapter 1. The Lower Forms of Abstraction. Abstraction Prior to Speech. Save in extremely rare cases, supposing such to occur at all, as perhaps in the instant of surprise, and in states approximating to pure sensation, save in such extremely rare cases, where the mind, like a mirror, passively reflects external impressions, intellectual activity, may always be reduced to one of the two following types, associating, combining, unifying or dissociating, isolating and separating. These cardinal operations underlie all forms of cognition, 
from the lowest to the highest and constitute its unity of composition. Abstraction belongs to the second type. It is a normal and necessary process of the mind, dependent on attention, i.e. on the limitation, willed or spontaneous, of the field of consciousness. The act of abstraction implies in its genesis both negative and positive conditions, and is the result of these. The negative conditions consist essentially in the fact that we cannot apprehend more than one quality or one aspect, varying according to the circumstances in any complex whole, because consciousness, like the retina, is restricted to a narrow region of clear perception. The positive condition is a state which has been appropriately termed a psychical reinforcement of that which is being abstracted, and it is naturally accompanied by a weakening of that which is abstracted form. The true characteristic of abstraction is this partial increment of intensity, while involving elimination it is actually a positive mental process. The elements or qualities of a percept or a representation which we omit do not necessarily involve such suppression. We leave them out of account simply because they do not suit our ends for the moment and are complementary Abstraction being, then in spite of negative appearances, a positive operation, how are we to conceive it? Attention is necessary to it, but it is more than attention. It is an augmentation of intensity, but it is more than an augmentation of intensity. Suppose a group of representations A plus B plus C equals D. To abstract from B and C in favour of A would ostensibly give A equals D minus B plus C. If this were so, B and C would be retained unaltered in consciousness. There would be no abstraction. On the other hand, since it is impossible for the whole representation D to be suppressed outright, B and C cannot totally be obliterated. They subsist accordingly in a residual state, which may be termed X, and the abstract representation is hence not A, but A plus X, or capital A. Thus the elements of abstract representations are the same as those of concrete representations. Only some are strengthened, others weakened. Whence arise new groupings. Abstraction accordingly consists in the formation of new groups of representations which 
while strengthening certain elements of the concrete representations, weaken other elements of the same. We see from the above that abstraction depends genetically upon the causes which awaken and sustain attention. I have described these causes elsewhere and cannot here return to their consideration. It is sufficient to remark that abstraction, like attention, may be instinctive, spontaneous and natural, or reflective, voluntary and artificial. In the first category, the abstraction of a quality or mode of existence originates in some attraction, or from utility, Hence it is a common manifestation of intellectual life, and is even met with, as we shall see, among many of the lower animals. In its second form, the rarer and more exalted, it proceeds less from the qualities of the object than from the will of the subject, it presupposes a choice and elimination of negligible elements, which is often laborious as well as the difficult task of maintaining the abstract element clearly in consciousness. In fine, it is always a special application of the attention which adapted as circumstances require to observation synthesis, action, etc. here functions as an instrument of analysis. A deeply rooted prejudice asserts that abstraction is a mental act of relative infrequency. This fallacy obtains in current parlance where abstract is a synonym of difficult, obscure, inaccessible. This is a psychological error resulting from an incomplete view. All abstraction is illegitimately reduced to its higher forms. The faculty of abstracting from the lowest to the highest degrees is constantly the same. Its development is dependent on that of general intelligence and of language but it exists in embryo, even in those primitive operations which are properly concerned with the concrete, i.e. perception and representation. Several recent authors have emphasized this point. Perception is par excellence the faculty of cognizing the concrete, it strives to embrace all the qualities of its object without completely succeeding, because it is held in check by an internal foe. The natural tendency of the mind to simplify and to eliminate. The same horse at a given moment is not perceived in the same manner by a jockey, a veterinary surgeon, a painter and a tyro. To each of these, certain qualities, which very individually stand in relief, and others recede into the background. 
except in cases of methodical and prolonged investigation, where we have observation and not perception. There is always an unconscious selection of some principal characteristics which, grouped together, became a substitute for totality. It must not be forgotten that perception is preeminently a practical operation, that its mainspring is interest or utility, and that in consequence we neglect, i.e. leave in the field of obscure consciousness, whatever at the moment concerns neither our desires nor our purposes. It would be superfluous to review all the forms of perception, visual, auditory, tactile, etc., and to show that they are governed by this same law of utility. But it should be remarked that the natural mechanism by which the strengthened elements and the weakened elements are separated is a rude cast of what subsequently becomes abstraction, that the same forces are in play and are ultimately reducible to some definite direction given to the attention. With the image, the intermediate stage between percept and concept, the reduction of the object represented to a few fundamental features is still more marked. Not merely is there among the different representations which I may have of some man, dog or tree, one that for the time being necessarily excludes the others. My oak tree perforce appears to me in summer foliage, tinted by autumn or bereft of leaves, in bright light or in shade, But even this individual, concrete representation, which prevails over the others, is no more than a sketch. A reduction of reality may, with many details, omitted. Apart from the exceptionally gifted men in whom mental vision and mental audition are perfect, and wholly commensurate, as it would seem, with perception, The representations which we call exact are never so, except in their most general features. Compare the image we have with our eyes closed of a monument, with the perception of the monument itself, the remembrance of a malady with its vocal or instrumental execution. In the average man, the image the would-be copy of reality invariably suffers a conspicuous impoverishment, which is enormous in the less lavishly endowed. It is here reduced to a mere schema, limited to the inferior concepts. Doubtless, it may be objected that the work of dissociation in perception and representation is incomplete and partial. It would be strange and illogical indeed if the abstract were to triumph in the very heart of the concrete. We do but submit that it is here in germ, in embryonic shape, 
and hence when abstraction appears in its true form, as the consciousness of one unique quality isolated from the rest. It is no new manifestation, but a fruition. It is a simplification of simplifications. The state of consciousness thus attained by the fixation of attention on one quality exclusively, and by its ideal dissociation from the rest, becomes, as we know, a notion which is neither individual nor general, but abstract. And this is the material of generalization. The sense of identity, the power of apprehending resemblances, is, has justly been said, the keel and backbone of our thinking. Without it, we should be lost in the incessant stream of things. Are there in nature any complete resemblances, any absolutely similar events? It is extremely doubtful. It might be supposed that a person who reads a sentence several times in succession, who listens several times to the same air, who tastes all the four quarters of the same fruit, would experience in each case an identical perception. But this is not so. A little reflection will show that besides differences in time, in the varying moods of the subject, and in the cumulative effect of repeated perceptions, there is at least between the first perception and the second, that radical difference which separates the new from the repeated. In fact, the material given us by external and internal experience consists of resemblances alloyed by differences, which vary widely in degree. In other words, analogies. The perfect resemblance assumed between things vanishes as we come to know them better. At first sight, a new people exhibits to the traveller a well-determined general type. Later, the more he observes, the more apparent uniformity is resolved into varieties. I have taken the trouble, says Ajazes, to compare thousands of individuals of the same species. In one case, I published the comparison so far as to have placed side by side 27,000 specimens of one and the same shell. I can assure you that in these 27,000 specimens, I did not find two that were perfectly alike. Is this faculty of grasping resemblances the substrate of generalization, primitive in the absolute signification of the word? Does it mark the first awakening of the mind in point of cognition? For several contemporary writers, Spencer, Bain, Schneider, and others, the consciousness of difference is the primordial factor. 
the consciousness of resemblance comes later. Others uphold the opposite contention. As a matter of fact, this quest for the primum cognitum is beyond our grasp. Like all genetical questions, it eludes our observation and experience. No conclusion can be formed save on purely logical arguments, and each side advances reasons that carry a certain weight. There is, moreover, at the bottom of the whole discussion, the grave error of identifying the embryonic state of the mind with its adult forms, and of presupposing a sharp initial distinction between discrimination and assimilation. The question must remain open, incapable of positive solution by our psychology, the incontestable truth with regard to the mind, as we know it in its developed and organized state, is that the two processes advance pari pursue and are reciprocally causative. In sum, abstraction and generalization considered as elementary acts of the mind and reduced to their simplest conditions, involve two processes. 1. The former abstraction implies a dissociative process, operating on the raw data of experience. It has subjective causes which are ultimately reducible to attention. It has objective causes which may be due to the fact that a determinate quality is given us an integral part of widely different groups. Any total impression whose elements are never experienced apart must be unanalyzable. If all cold things were wet and all wet things cold, if all liquids were transparent and no non-liquid were transparent, we should scarcely discriminate between coldness and wetness, and scarcely ever invent separate names for liquidity and transparency. What is associated now with one thing and now with another tends to become dissociated from either and to grow into an object of abstract contemplation by the mind. One might call this the law of dissociation by varying contaminants. 2. The latter Generalization originates in association by resemblance, but even in its lowest degree, it rises beyond this. Since it implies a synthetic act of fusion, it does not, in fact, consist in the successive excitation of similar or analogous percepts, as in the case where the image of St. Peter's in Rome suggests to me that of St. Paul's in London, of the Pantheon in Paris, and of other churches with enormous dimensions of like architecture and with gigantic domes. It is a condensation, 
The mind resembles a crucible with a precipice of common resemblances at the bottom, while the differences have been volatilized. In proportion as we recede from this primitive and elementary form, the constitution of the general idea demands other psychological conditions which cannot be hastily enumerated. And thus we reach the principal aim of the present work, which purports not to reinforce the time-worn dispute as to the nature of abstraction and generalization, but to pursue these operations step by step in their development and multiform aspects. Directly, we pass beyond pure individual representation. We reach an ascending scale of notions which, apart from the general character, possessed by all, are extremely heterogeneous in their nature and imply distinct mental habits. The question so often discussed as to what takes place in the mind when we are thinking by general ideas is not to be disposed of in one definite answer, but finds variable response according to the circumstances. In order to give an adequate reply, the principal degrees of this scale must first be determined, and for this we require an objective notation which shall give them some external, though not arbitrary, mark. The first distinguishing mark is given by the absence or presence of words, abstraction and generalization, with no possible aid from language, constitute the inferior group which some recent writers have designated by the appropriate name of generic images a term which clearly shows their immediate nature between the pure image and the general notion, properly so called. The second class, which we have termed intermediate abstraction, implies the use of words. At their lowest stage, these concepts hardly rise above the level of the generic image. They can be reduced to a vague schema, in which the word is almost a superfluous accompaniment. At a stage higher, the parts are inverted. The representative schema becomes more and more impoverished, and is obliterated by the word, which rises in consciousness to the first rank. Finally, the third class that of the higher concepts, has for its distinguishing mark that it can no longer be represented. If any image arises in consciousness, it does not sensibly assist the movement of thought and may even impede it. Everything apparently at least is subordinated to language. This enumeration of the stages of abstraction can for the present only be given roughly and broadly. Every phase of its evolution should be studied in itself, 
and accurately determined by its internal and external characteristics. As to the legitimacy, the objective and practical value of this schematic distribution, nothing less than a detailed exploration from one end to the other of our subject, can confirm or overthrow it. We shall begin, then, with the lower forms, dwelling upon these at some length, because they are usually neglected or altogether omitted. This is the pre-linguistic period of abstraction and generalization. Words are totally wanting. They are an unknown factor. How far is it possible, without the aid of language, to transcend the level of perception and of consecutive images, and to attain a more elevated intellectual standpoint? In replying empirically, we have three fairly copious sources of information. Animals, children, who have not yet acquired speech, and uneducated deaf-mutes. It is a commonplace to say that animal psychology is full of obscurities and difficulties. These arise mainly with regard to the question now occupying us, for we are concerned with ascertaining, not whether animals perceive, remember and even when their organization is sufficiently advanced, imagine. But if they are capable, in the intellectual order of still better and greater achievements, the common opinion is in the negative, yet this may rest entirely upon ambiguity of language. Without prejudging anything, we must interrogate the facts to hand, and link them as closely as possible in our interpretation. As to the facts themselves, we may be sparing of detail. They are to be found in special treatises, and it is superfluous to repeat them in these pages. It is moreover evident that a large portion of the animal kingdom may be neglected, In its lowest regions, it is so remote from us and has so obscure and scant a psychology that nothing can be learned from it. In the higher forms alone, can we have any chance of finding what we seek, i.e. equivalence of concepts, processes comparable with reasoning. In the immense realm of the invertebrates, The highest physical development is, by general acknowledgement, met with the social hypomponderia, and the capital representatives of this group are ants. To these we may confine ourselves. Despite their tiny size, their brain, particularly among the neuters, is remarkable in structure, One of the most marvellous atoms, says Darwin, in all matter, not excepting even the human brain. Injuries to this organ, which are frequent in their sanguinary combats, cause disorders quite analogous to those observed in mammals. 
it is useless to recall what everyone knows of their habits, their organization of labor, varied methods of architecture, their wars, plundering, methods of education, their agricultural labors, harvesting, construction of granaries, etc. We, on the contrary, must examine the exceptional cases in which the ants depart from their general habits, for their ability to abstract, to generalize, and to reason can only be established by new adaptations to unaccustomed circumstances. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the story, which is the evolution of general ideas. If you're not quite tired yet, you're always welcome to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, and good night.